Good afternoon and welcome to Bookends, a virtual book club where you can listen to conversations with featured authors and then dialogue with them in a discussion group on LinkedIn. This year our book on Bookends, we are focusing on the topic of employee engagement and my guest today is Michael Lee Stollard, who is the primary author of the book Fired Up or Burned Out, How to Reignite Your Team's Passion, Creativity and Productivity. Following today's interview, you are invited to engage Michael in conversation on LinkedIn. Just log in to LinkedIn, search groups, and join the group called Bookends the Discussion. Here you can pose questions and discuss employee engagement issues with your peers. You can dialogue with Michael Lee Stollard and other authors who are members of this group. You will also find a link to a recording of today's interview as well as previous interviews. Invite your friends to join the group and listen and discuss with you. I am Susan Stamm, and I'm pleased to introduce Michael Lee Stollard as our guest today. Michael is the president and CEO of ePoibus Partners. He has spoken at con uh, conferences organized by Fortune Magazine, the World's President's Organization, and the Corporate Executive Board, as well as organizations such as GE, Lockheed Martin, and General Dynamics. GE recently redesigned its leadership course to incorporate Michael's work. He has been a guest lecturer at New York University's Stern School of Business, the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business, and the Center for Creative Leadership. Michael is a former Chief Marketing Officer for Business at Morgan Stanley and Charles Schwab. He also previously worked as an executive at Texas Instruments. Michael writes about the leadership of American companies for the Economic Times, which is India's largest circulation business newspaper. His work has also appeared in leading publications around the world, including the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Leader to Leader, Leadership Excellence, and the Journal of the American Management Association. To purchase a copy of Fired Up or Burned Out, please visit Michael's website, which is www.firedup.com. BurnedOut.com, FiredUp or BurnedOut.com, just exactly as it sounds, www.FiredUp or BurnedOut.com. Michael Lee Stollard, welcome to Bookend. Well, Susan, thank you for having me, and con yes. congratulations on your, your new book, by the way. <laughs> well, thank you for that, Michael. Uh, it's, really, uh, it's really great to uh, have this time to visit with you today. I loved your book, and I loved some of the way you weave some of the historical figures and lessons into the lessons of leadership that are throughout the book. And, uh, you know, as I was reading your book, it, 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 it this probably is going to sound a little strange to you, but believe it or not, in, in my work as I'm out interacting with organizations, I still to this day actually encounter leaders who are suspicious about workplace friendship and relationships, which, of course, is, you know, uh, something, a uh, very important part of the book that you talk about. Leaders, uh, some, you know, sometimes these leaders feel that employees should really just show up, crank out the work, and then just go back home. Um, would you be able to make a case for people who may still have that, you know, very um, uh, old-school mentality on the importance of workplace connection. Sure. Let me just uh, share a couple of things, Susan. One is um, that uh, there are so many studies that uh, show the, the link between connection, employee engagement, and uh, superior performance in organizations. But let me just cite one. Uh, the Corporate Executive Board, which is a for-profit think tank based in um, in Washington, D.C., they have uh, just huge membership throughout the corporate world. 
They did a study of 50,000 individuals in 2004. It was a global study, and they concluded that individuals in uh, business units uh, where, where the individuals reported that they felt more engaged and connected, those individuals were 20% more productive than the average employee. That's an additional day of productivity a week. So just imagine the compounded effect of that over several years or over an individual's career. It's huge. So that's just one study. There are so many studies that uh, show this uh, link between performance and uh, how we feel about our workplace. Um, It was interesting. Probably just a couple months ago I got a call from uh, Admiral Vern Clark, who was the Chief of Navy Operations uh, for the United States Navy from 2000 to 2005. And Admiral Clark told me he was speaking at a leadership conference in uh, Atlanta. Uh, I believe he was actually calling from the airport. And he said, uh, he, I just want to encourage you to keep writing, keep speaking about this uh, work on connection, because so few leaders understand how critical this is. And, of course, uh, Admiral Clark is credited for when Admiral Clark came in in 2000 to the U.S. Navy, uh, the Navy was not meeting its uh, sailor retention goals. And after Admiral Clark created what I call a connection culture, uh, they had more sailors than they knew what to do with. Um, it really was a remarkable turnaround. They were breaking all-time records in terms of uh, sailor retention. So connection, employee engagement, these are very important factors, uh, something that every leader needs to learn about and apply if they're going to achieve their potential as leaders. I couldn't agree more. In, in Chapter 2 of your book, you discuss, you discuss a variety of different theories and people. And I was wondering if you could tell us what rational cultural theory, Maslow's theory of human motivation, Aristotle, and Harvard's Edward Hollowell all have in common. Wow, that's a challenging question, Susan. <laughs> <laughs> you want me to connect the dots on all those, huh? <laughs> well, um just in a, in a sentence, they all recognize the importance of this feeling of connection. And um, in, in our research, when we did research uh, studying the workplace, we found that employees who were thriving, they inevitably described, we heard this enough times that we, we just decided to pick up on that word connection because people used it, and they described it as feeling connected to the people they worked with in the workplace, to uh, feeling connected to the organization, and feeling connected to their day-to-day work. And um, when, you, when you hear that word connected enough, you kind of get the clue and, and realize that um, that's a, a great description of how people feel when they're thriving. And um, several of the people that you mentioned are organizations like relational cultural uh, theory, which is really originated out of uh, uh, Wellesley uh, College up in Massachusetts. They, they talk about mutual empathy, which is also a way to describe uh, connection, emotional connection. Um, Abraham Maslow, the father of humanistic psychology in the 50s, um, he picked up on the importance of respect, recognition, and belonging. Those are all aspects of connection. Uh, going all the way back to uh, classic times, uh, Aristotle even talked about um, uh, that, that uh, the governments need to create the right environment where people, where citizens, uh, feel a sense of ownership. That's also one aspect of connection. And finally, uh, Harvard's uh, Ed Hallowell. Um, Hallowell is a well-respected psychiatrist. He's a former instructor of psychiatry at, at uh, Harvard Medical School. And uh, 
Ned is what he goes by. He describes um, connection as uh, he, he he shared with me, and he's written that psychiatrists see just an endless stream of people coming from the business world who describe feeling uh, empty and bored in their lives. And inevitably, psychiatrists uh, prescribe for them that they need more uh, relationships in their lives, that they don't have high-trust relationships. And um, uh, Ned Hallowell is even described as vitamin C, which stands for vitamin connection, that um, if you don't have connection in your life, you start to dysfunction. And psychiatrists see this day in and day out. So in a sense, uh, Harvard's uh, Edward Hollowell might be indicating that for some of us, our work is making us sick. Yes. Because we're we're so lacking for relationships. Right, yeah. If you crowd out time for relationships. Um, another person who's really done great work in this area is Manford uh, F.R. Katz-DeVries, who is a professor at NCED outside of Paris. He studied CEOs and um, individuals on on Wall Street and uh, just felt that um, in his research he sees that so many people deceive themselves about the balance, or which is actually the lack of balance in their lives. And because they're spending so much time working and traveling, they don't take the time to uh, connect with their family members. They don't have close friends. They don't really have close friends in the workplace. And so they start to dysfunction, and these feelings of emptiness and boredom creep into their lives. And oftentimes they result to some form of self-medication to treat themselves, which could be substance abuse or taking excessive business risk for the thrill or sexual uh, risks, uh, just all kinds of things that um, don't end well, let's put it that way. Yeah. Wow, pretty interesting. Vision, value, and voice are your formula for creating a connection culture. And, of course, that's what we've been talking about. Can you describe each of these elements and share some of the powerful examples that you offered in your book? Okay. Um, do you mind if I use an example that's not in the book? You, you absolutely. <laughs> I'll, I'll use a relatively new one that I've written about in, in several publications. Um, and we'll save the other ones for people who, who pick up the book. There's so many stories I could drop on. Um, but vision, let me just give you the definitions. Vision exists in an organization. These are all elements of connection. Uh, vision exists when everyone is motivated by the mission. They're, they feel united by the values, and they're proud of the organization's reputation. Um, value exists when people understand uh, the human needs of, uh, of individuals in the workplace, when they appreciate the positive, unique contributions of their colleagues, and they help them achieve their potential. So it's an environment where people feel like they're surrounded by trusted colleagues rather than rivals who want to compete with them. And then finally, uh, voice exists when everyone uh, seeks the ideas of others, when they share their opinions and ideas honestly and they safeguard relational connections. Now, that's a mouthful when I told you all those definitions, but let me just give you a quick example. I think people will start to get a sense for what vision and value, uh, vision, value, and voice are. Um, the rock band U2 is a great example of this, that this sense of connection applies not only in organizations, but it applies in teams, it applies in families, it applies in community groups. So it really applies to any group of people. And U2 is a great example. Here's uh, four guys who knew each other since they were teenagers back in Dublin, Ireland. Um, today they have won more Grammy Awards than any band in history. 
now, and they've just been wildly successful. They've been together for over 30 years. And when you look at what keeps them together when so many rock bands um, fall apart after a few years, um, sometimes when they get successful, they fall apart. But um, they, the, the vision aspect of connection among the members of U2 is um, what Bono, the lead singer, has called the spark. In other words, all of their music is really focused on human rights and social justice, and those are issues that especially Bono feels very strongly about. But um, uh, three of the four other members actually have a very long history of being involved in uh, those issues. So it uh, that's uh, the the spark, as Bono calls it, really resonates with uh, most of the members of the band. So it's it's not just music to them; it's a mission right. that they feel strongly about. Uh, value is that people feel that sense of value, and um, you know Bono, who's uh, kind of the megastar of the group, he um, has said publicly that he appreciates the. And in fact, I've, I recall reading that he. Uh, said that uh, he hears melodies in his head, Susan, but he's not really able to bring those uh, in, into uh, actually written music. And so he needs uh, Edge, the lead guitar player, and uh, Adam Clayton, the bass player, and uh, Larry Mullen Jr., the drummer, to really uh, bring that music about. And he just appreciates their talents. Um, in fact, so much so that the rock band members and their managers split the economic profits equally five ways, even though Bono could certainly go off on his own yeah. and um, and probably make immense wealth. But he feels like um, he's so close to these guys, and, and he said that they make me a better person and a better musician, so why would I ever want to leave them? <laughs> <laughs> certainly making enough money. And, uh, and then finally, voice. Um, um, you know, the, the items I just mentioned make each of those guys feel included in that culture. And they've also, by the way, I should just mention this, they have had some struggles in life. Um, Edge uh, went through a very bitter divorce, and the guys were uh, there for him when that happened. Um, Larry Mullen Jr., when he was a teenager, his mother died. And it turns out a couple years before that, Bono's mother had passed away. And so Bono reached out to his friend Larry and said, hey, you know, I know you're going through I'll be there for you. If I can help you, let me know. And that created this bond between the two of them. And then later on, Adam Clayton had a drug and alcohol addiction that the guys helped him get through over the course of five years. And uh, back in the early 80s, when the band was playing in Arizona, uh, they received a death threat that the FBI uh, told them they really needed to take very seriously. It was aimed at Bono and, and said, if you play the song Pride about Martin Luther King Jr., that um, you'll be killed. And uh, Bono wrote about, um, um, actually in an interview, he talked about how he closed his eyes through part of the song, and when he opened his eyes, to his surprise, he found Adam Clayton standing in front of him to shield him from potential harm. My goodness. Can you imagine that? And he wrote that he felt like, he, he said he felt for the first time what it was like to be in a family. Wow. that he had someone, you know, one of his good buddies was willing to take a bullet for him, literally. So that was, um, you know, that's an extreme example, of course, but these guys are very close, and is it any surprise that they have been together for more than 30 years? And then the final thing I should mention is just the voice aspect. They believe in a consensus-making um, decision approach, and so they try, they really uh, take their time to produce their music, 
and um, they feel like they should try to reach consensus among the four band members um, before they produce a, a song. And they they talked about that's you know that's frustrating. It takes time. They don't always agree, and they have to work things out. Now I haven't I haven't read um, how they actually break ties when they have um, you know when there's a stalemate in, in the decision making process. But um, they've written about how much they believe in the consensus approach. And um, I think every leader should should strive for that. You can't always do that. You know, if you have a, um, a missile coming at your submarine, you have to move quickly. You can't, <laughs> you know, you can't uh, call a committee together. But generally, that's not the case. There is time to try to develop a consensus, and and that's a, a, just another thing that has helped keep the members of U2 very cohesive and together. That's a powerful, powerful example. And- and uh, the example that you just shared, of course, is what this would look like within an organization. In this case, it's a rock band. Uh, you also offer a, a powerful example within the book of how this model, vision, value, and voice looks when you know within an individual. And the individual that I'm describing was a, a gentleman by the name of John Wood. Would you be able to tell us just a little bit about his life and what these ideals look like and how he, he demonstrated those? Well, sure. Wooden's story is a great one, isn't it? I, oh, he's he's such a um, I, – I, there are so many books that have been written about Wooden, and, it's, and a number of them by players who uh, played for him when he was head coach at the University of uh, California, Los Angeles, uh, head coach of the men's basketball team. But to really know Wooden's story, you have to go back to um, – Indiana, where he grew up, and uh, he uh, was uh, actually was uh, quite a basketball star um, during high school and college, and he uh, became an English teacher and uh, taught in uh, in high school. Then he went off to the Navy. When he came back from the Navy, um, the school district that uh, he was returning to didn't offer all of the veterans there uh, who were returning their jobs, and so he, they offered him a job, but he declined it because he didn't feel that was right. And so he ended up um, taking a position at Indiana State Teachers College to be the basketball coach. And uh, within a short time, he had them in the postseason tournament. Um, on his team, he had one African American player by the name of Clarence Walker, and. Um, at that time, in the postseason tournament, African-American players were not allowed to play postseason tournament basketball. But um, uh, So when they received the invitation, wouldn't turn the invitation down because he felt that if it involved humiliating any of his players that um, he would not participate in that. And so they sat out the first year they were invited into the postseason tournament. And then uh, the second season, they won their conference again. They were invited to the postseason tournament, and um, uh, the tournament officials came back and said, okay, you can bring Clarence if he stays with someone else. He can't stay with the team, and he can't be publicly seen with them, with the team members. And so, once again, Wooden turned him down. He said he wasn't going to humiliate Clarence, any of his, any, any of his boys. And um, then Clarence's parents came to Wooden and asked him to um, – to really, to really really reconsider his decision because if we give Clarence a chance to be the first African American player in the postseason tournament in history, that was progress in their eyes. Yeah. And so Wooden thought about it and said, okay, you know, they set it up so that um, Clarence could stay with a African American minister who lived in Kansas City. And so they set about. They traveled across uh, across uh, Indiana and across Illinois. When they stopped at restaurants that wouldn't serve Clarence, Wooden made everybody get back in the bus. 
and eventually they went. Uh, they played in their first tournament, and Clarence played in the ball game. Uh, Clarence was uh, uh, more of a guy who was on the bench. He wasn't a starter, but he got some playing time, and uh, they ended up losing in the finals to Louisville. Well, the rest of the story is that eventually Wooden gets an offer to go to UCLA, where he becomes the head basketball coach. He has uh, wins 10 national championships. Four of those were perfect seasons where they didn't lose an a single game throughout the season. And um, when you look at the culture he created, it's really been written. There's a lot of um, information about uh, how Wooden coached. And he created a, a vision for the basketball team. Um, he told the players that they had to live up to what he called his pyramid of uh, success, which is uh, a number of values like industriousness and teamwork and um, just great classic values um, that he held out. And um, and it was, it was a, a vision for what the team needed to achieve to be considered um, UCLA basketball players. And he also brought value into the culture in the sense that um, he required the uh, basketball players to pick up after themselves. He wouldn't let the team managers pick up after the basketball players. When they were traveling, he expected them to be respectful to people who worked at hotels, to the flight attendants uh, on the airplanes they traveled on. So he really insisted on um, just uh, you know, showing, uh, respecting one another. And then finally, he also gave them a voice. He had this saying that uh, if we're all thinking the same thing, then no one's thinking. And, um, in fact, during the Vietnam War, one of his players, Bill Walton, who those of you who follow, you know, your listeners who follow sports will probably know Walton. He's been a, a famous broadcaster. Well, he was a great basketball player at UCLA and, and a bit of a, um, a rebel in his time. <laughs> and um, Walton had... Uh, grabbed some UCLA basketball stationery and wrote a letter of protest about the Vietnam War, and all the players signed it, and they brought it to Wooden and asked him if he would sign it too. And he said he wouldn't because he didn't agree with their views, but he thought um, that they should express their voices, and so he allowed them to use UCLA stationery, basketball stationery, to uh, send a letter of protest about the war to uh, Richard Nixon. So it was just interesting. He created this... Uh, when, you, when you read the essays and books that have been written about Wooden, um, the players just talked about how cohesive they were and how connected they were and how much influence he had on them as human beings, that in some ways they've become John Wooden because they have embraced his values. Yeah. Wow, such a powerful story and such, a, such an interesting parallel between a Wooden and Bono. Um, you know, it's interesting to put the two stories side by side. Right. You would never guess to see those two together in the same room, would you? <laughs> and, and yet, um, in a lot of ways, they share similar values when it, turns yeah. to, when it comes to um, a real passion for excellence and what they do and um, their commitment to people and teamwork. Yeah, humanity and fairness and yes. dignity yeah. and all of those kinds of things. Absolutely. Yeah, they both have very strong, uh, very strong sense of, uh, of character. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the, the things that I think we're really challenged by in our American culture, and, and I know there's other countries that, that are challenged by this as well, but it's particularly strong here, is our focus on task excellence. We talked about excellence in these two sketches that you've provided, but this is task excellence. And, you know, in your view, how is this affecting organizations today? 
Well, I, I think um, organizations today are so focused on task excellence that um, most leaders don't see the importance of developing relationship excellence. And yet, our research shows that if you're if you are focused on task excellence but ignore relationship excellence, the lack of relationship excellence will sabotage task excellence every time. I think um, just a quick story. If I keep telling stories, you might be here for two hours, Susan. <laughs> but let me let me just tell a quick one because this really illustrates, um, I think, uh, the, just the nature of this, uh, the importance of task and relationship excellence. Uh, the Chicago Bulls basketball team. Another basketball story here. Um, when Michael Jordan graduated, uh, or actually was uh, uh, drafted out of the University of North Carolina uh, after his junior year to join the Chicago Bulls basketball team, um, Doug Collins was the coach of the Bulls. And, and Collins is a great coach. I mean, he really knows basketball. Um, he focused on developing the plays and developing uh, excellence in terms of executing those plays. That was his focus. And um, he coached the Bulls, and he certainly improved them over the five years that he was head coach of the Bulls after Jordan came. But they failed to live up to the expectations of the Bulls' owner, Jerry Reinsdorf, given all that they were paying for Michael Jordan. And um, so they decided to make a coaching change, and they elevated Phil Jackson, who today is the coach of the Lakers. But at that time, he was an assistant coach on the Bulls. I think the genius of Jackson, Jackson is that he came into the Bulls and he saw that something more was needed than just focusing on uh, execution of the plays, that there was really a breakdown in relationships among the Bulls um, that was holding them back. So Jackson sat down with Michael Jordan and said, Michael, we're never going to be NBA champions unless you surrender the me for the we, unless you take the time to get to know your teammates and start to share the ball with them so that they feel like, uh, in other words, the star of the team has to be the team, not yeah. Michael Jordan. Right. Because if we're entirely focused on Michael Jordan, then the rest of the guys are not going to give their best efforts. They're not going to align their behavior with our goals. Um, they really need to feel like a team, uh, like the team, like their team members. And right now they feel like um, second-class citizens. And, you know, the great thing about Michael Jordan is, you know, he thought about it and he listened. He's very coachable. He has a lot of wisdom, very thoughtful guy. And so he started coming to practice early, um, helping the rookies, spending time with the veterans, you know, praising the veterans for the hard work they were doing. And um, when he developed uh, trust and a good relationship with the rest of his teammates, that's when the Bulls became a basketball powerhouse. Over the next eight years, they won six NBA championships. And uh, Phil Jackson wrote a great book about it. It's called Sacred Hoops. Um, but it just shows how powerful and how critical it is to develop relationship excellence, too, because in so many organizations, the stars and the leaders – feel engaged and connected, but 75% of the employees don't. Yeah. They're like the rest of the Bulls on the, you know, that team with uh, Jordan. And unless you make them, unless you're intentional about building bridges to them so that they feel connected, you're not going to get their best efforts and you're not going to achieve uh, organizational success. And you're also susceptible to managerial failure. Right. Absolutely. That is such a powerful story. Um, on, on, on page 64 in your book, I, I'd like to read a quote. It says, human value and culture, first of all, is about treating people with respect and dignity, and second, about empowering them to achieve their potential. What do you think are some of the common obstacles that keep people from feeling valued, and what should leaders be doing out there? 
Well, you know, that's a very nice question, following up on our, just the preceding question, because, uh, once again, it really takes us back to the dynamic that's in place in so many organizations that the, the leaders and the stars feel connected, but 75%, 80% of the people don't. And so I would say, you know, some work environments are toxic, but that's generally not the case. Most work environments are really indifferent to people. And, you know, like the like the rest of the Bulls. In fact, Michael Jordan, going back to that previous story, um, he actually called the other players on the team uh, his supporting cast at one time. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Not the best thing. I'm sure Phil Jackson talked to him about that. <laughs> and, um, and, and that's how so many people feel in organizations, like they're part of the supporting cast. Yeah. And uh, so it really is critical for um, – to not develop a, not allow a culture of indifference to permeate the organization or the team, but to act, actively uh, build bridges to the people throughout the organization so that they feel connected. Um, and if you don't take the time to, uh, say, when employees come in the organization, it's important to take the time to help them see their role in the whole of the organization, to understand where we're going as an organization, why it's important, how we're going to get there, and what my role is, and who are the people who are critical uh, to helping me perform my job. Um, you know, being very active up front to help people see that is important, and then helping them uh, learn and grow, taking the time to get to know them as human beings so that they don't feel like you're just treating them as human doings all the time. And then um, uh, educate people on this dynamic, that these things have to be done. These are not soft. These are hard in terms of their effect on performance. Great. You talk about something that you uh, refer to as knowledge flow in the book, and, and you introduce three benefits of, of this concept. The second of these benefits that you talk about, uh, you say that knowledge flow helps decision makers make better decisions. And I was wondering, uh, in this section, you, you 